The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. This is your forum for exploring and discussing challenges that are faced by public and nonprofit leaders. And now, Leadership Matters. Welcome to another edition of Leadership Matters, a program that aims support the leadership development of current and future public and nonprofit leaders. We have a very important discussion on tap for today. Our topic for today is mission and values. How do we manage to live out our mission and stay true to our values, especially if we should realize that we aren't managing to achieve the results that our mission and our values call for us to achieve? I'm Tom Wall, and I'll serve as the moderator of our discussion today. I work with the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities and for the Strategic Change Initiative to help public sector and nonprofit leaders to transform their organizations to ensure their future success. With me today is my good friend, Andre Howard, who will serve as a panelist on our discussion. Andre, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. Again, I'm from the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities and uh, uh, really a national organization uh, dedicated to achieving a vision of healthy society. And I serve as our vice president of our center in leadership and uh, hope to share a little bit of that, uh, more information about our center uh, as we go along in the show as well. So glad to be here. Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Also with us today is our special guest, Ken Barrick. Now, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself in just a couple minutes, but first, a few words on our topic for today. Today, we will address and look into the most important question, at least one of the most important questions in our field. What do we do if we have a strong and dynamic mission? And if we have a clear set of values, and yet we realize that the approaches we're using, they're not going to get us the results that we need to achieve. This is actually a very common dilemma in our field right now. Many of us are much more clear on what results we need to get than how we're clear on how we're actually going to manage to get those results. When we realize that we have this dilemma, we're usually challenged to change what we do so that we can find new ways to achieve what we need to achieve. The old saw says that if we always do what we've always done, we're going to continue to get the results we've always gotten. And when those results aren't good enough, well, we usually conclude that we have to adapt what we do. Adaptations like this usually take us out of our comfort zone. We have a natural tendency to want to try to solve our new problems with our old solutions. Sometimes that works, but usually it doesn't. Usually we have to find new solutions to develop new approaches. Our guest today, Ken Barrick, has spent the better part of his career working hard to develop those new approaches, to develop approaches that would enable his organization to achieve their mission, which is to provide unconditional care to youths and their families. 
Ken's organization has been committed to unconditional care in their work for a long time. But early on, they found that the traditional methods of serving the youth that they were being asked to serve weren't getting them where they needed to go and weren't producing the results that they were called to produce. And so they adapted. How they adapted and what they began to do is the subject of our discussion today. Ken Barrick, it's an honor to have you with us. Would you take a few moments and introduce yourself to our audience, please? Happy to. And Tom, thanks for having me. It's great to be here with you and with Andre and, uh, and to have this important discussion. Um, I uh, started uh, Seneca uh, some 30, it'll be 30 years ago in July. Uh, with the idea that we wanted to help children and families through the most difficult times in their lives. And those were primarily uh, children and families who had been removed, children who had been removed from their homes by social services as a result of abuse and neglect, and uh, children who had had profound trauma in their lives. And uh, through those 30 years, I've had the privilege of working with national organizations. I've, uh, I'm a member of the Alameda County Board of Education. I've had the privilege of being the president of the California Com- uh, County Boards of Education Association, the California Alliance of Child and Family Services, and a number of other experiences that have given me a very broad overview of children and family services, both in California and across the country. Fantastic. Ken, when did you first realize that if you were going to get the results you were called by your mission and values to get, that you were going to have to make some changes? Well, I think, I think we first realized it when the kids that we were serving told us, um, and yeah. they told us in a number of ways. Uh, Tom, we started out uh, primarily uh, serving kids in residential treatment in homes away from their families, and... Um, and with uh, enormously, I think, talented staff that were very engaged and committed to the kids, uh, we watched them get better. And, uh, and then oh, after they got better, uh, we had the dilemma of trying to figure out how we could transition them to more permanent settings uh, and uh, help them continue to grow. And, um, and many, many times the kids would ask us uh, sometimes if they could come home with us uh, and be part of our family, sometimes if they could go back to their families or to friends of their families. And we had no way to make that happen with them, no way to support that. And we often watched kids leave our services and do very poorly. Um, we mm-hmm. watched kids move into the juvenile justice system. We watched kids move from one place to another uh, that didn't have services that were robust enough to meet their needs, and, and we watch kids uh, fail and fail again. And um, I think everybody that works here and, and folks that are associated with the Alliance feel pretty strongly that it's when, when kids fail, it's not the kids that are failing at all, it's, it's the, the programs that are failing the kids. And, and we felt that we had to adapt to create settings that would allow those kids to be successful in keeping with the idea that what we should be doing should be unconditional. It should help kids across all the domains in their life. Beautiful. Uh, You and and John Sprinson wrote a wonderful book on unconditional care. I wonder if you'd take just a couple moments and talk about the critical components that you see in the unconditional care that you write so beautifully about. 
Thanks. Well, and, and, and let me be clear, that's John that wrote so beautifully about it. Uh, I'm, I'm an author on the book because John and I shared the ideas and worked together. So um, I'm sure he'll appreciate your kind words about, about his beautiful writing, and I agree with you. Um, John and I spent a lot of time talking about how do we communicate ideas that were really important to us um, to our staff and to the communities that we serve and to the kids and families in, in a way that created a cohesive set of both uh, programmatic ideas and ethical underpinnings so that everyone could be on the same page and understand how as our programs evolved and changed what we were thinking. And there were three primary components to that thinking. First was attachment. And, and how kids and families are attached to one another and how that attachment can help or hurt in, in cases where trauma is introduced. So attachment theory also takes you to think about trauma and the effects of trauma on young people and on their families and on communities. So that was component one. Component two was about learning theory and behavior theory and how uh, what happens in a child's life shapes what they learn, shapes their behavior, and sometimes in very positive ways, and sometimes kids learn things that are not that helpful to them, and they create behaviors that ultimately are destructive to them as they grow. And finally, uh, we thought about social ecology. What are the, con the cultural conditions, the environmental conditions, the, the conditions of community that occur around and outside of a child that shape that child's life? So you can know a million things about a child's internal world and about their internal working model and how they think and how they feel. But if you don't understand the cultural context of that, if you don't understand what's happening in the neighborhood and in the community that they live that's influencing all of those things, then you can't effectively uh, intervene and help in a child's life. So those were the three components of unconditional care that then led to a consistent way of thinking as our programs grew and adapted. Now, as you can try to get folks to think in a new way and in a different way about offering services, uh, following the three components of unconditional care that you've described, how did you find other service delivery folks responding to your views on unconditional care? Were their reactions favorable? <laughs> um, you know, Tom, the, the, I think reaction to change uh, varies in ways that will sound very familiar to you. And I, I, we always joke that there are sort of three groups of people and three groups of reactions. The, the first is, um, that's not what I know, that's not what I'm doing, and that's not what I'm going to do. The second is, <laughs> yeah. hmm, <laughs> this is interesting. Let me sit back and look at this and see how it works. And the third is, oh, wow, this is a change. This could be interesting. Let's do this. And um, uh, so w I think we found that in both our internal communities within the agency and our external communities. Now, we hire, and one of the things we look for when we hire are people who are interested in, adaptable to, and engaged in change. And mm -hmm. that does make the process of change internally easier because we hire people with a predisposition towards thinking that way. Um, in, in, in our external environment, it was quite different. And, and often we would have to um, introduce the program, sometimes at our 
own cost and with our philanthropic partners, um, and, and introduce the idea first, let them see it demonstrated, and then they would come in with us as a partner. I, occasionally, and, and this is the case, um, San Francisco County in particular, who's a great partner of ours, occasionally our partner was actually leading the change and we got to go with them. And that was a tremendous privilege and, and a lot of fun when you have somebody that's of like mind and like value. But that's usually not the case. Usually there's a process of engaging people in an idea, uh, uh, ha- exposing them to the idea, and showing them that the idea could work. When, when you were working within your own organization and had those same three breakdowns, um, how did you begin to build a culture where folks were, say, ch- more change-ready and more change-supportive? What things did you do to take the original culture and adapt it in a direction of more flexibility? Well, it, it might have been a little bit easier than it sounds in the sense that um, b- part of the culture uh, as it existed from the very beginning was to start with, with the kids. And mm-hmm. so we were all seeing the same problem at, at every level of the organization w- was seeing that, that the kids that we cared so much about weren't doing as well as we wanted them to do when they transitioned. And mm-hmm. so... Um, I, I wish I could say that these ideas were all mine. Actually, I, I'm proud to say that they weren't. That, that mm-hmm. some of what we did was we responded to our own staff saying, this isn't good. You know, we're transitioning kids to, to settings where they're not being successful. We're not feeling like we're having the impact we want to have because it doesn't matter what we do here. If we don't change the trajectory of this child's life, we haven't done a good job. And so, so some of those ideas actually came from our own staff. What if we could take the same levels of service that we provide here and the same people and transition to, to homes with these kids? What if we could transition into the community with these kids with the same supportive ideas and the same clinical functions? And Outstanding. We We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Stay with us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Conversations concerning money can be a bit daunting. There can be limitations with building wealth, and in general, people don't want to discuss their money until now. Listen each week for Conversations with Money, featuring Franco Caligiuri and Marissa Sipolinski. Our guests make money the conversation piece. How to build and maintain wealth, working with charities, and money and family members. 
Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. Welcome back. I'm Tom Wall, and we're back with our panelist, Andre Howard, and our special guest, Ken Barrick. And we're talking about mission and values. We just reviewed some of the reactions of the service delivery community and some of the reactions of Ken's own staff with the service innovations that he was introducing right before the break. Ken, did you have anything that you wanted to add just uh, in follow-up to what we were talking about? You were mentioning the importance of transitioning youths back into the community. Any thoughts you wanted to add before we move on to the next question? Uh, not really. I, I think, again, I, uh, as as you look at the evolution of programs, uh, if if your programs follow the needs of the kids and the families that you serve, then they'll tend to lead you, I think, in directions that will be more productive as opposed to trying to serve the programs themselves. And I think that's been a fundamental premise of the way that we've thought about this going forward. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, and, you know, I'll just jump in if I could quickly. I think uh, for mm-hmm. so many of us as leaders in the sector, we have been wired to serve the program, right, versus the need of the children, families, adults that we serve. And I think that uh, has um, not allowed us an opportunity to kind of step outside the box and think differently about new pathways and, and, and new ways to, to just think about how we can have even much more impact and relevancy uh, in the communities and neighborhoods that we serve. And, you know, uh, Ken, if I were to push on you just a little bit to ask, I mean, you know, um, certainly thinking about our sector, I mean, where do you think we are in terms of leaders as a whole? I mean, are we uh, bold enough? Are we courageous enough? I mean, you took a pretty bold stand in terms of this a whole uh, a model of unconditional care. I mean, where do you think we stand as a whole, uh, as leadership in the sector in terms of, uh, of change and needing to make those changes when we need to make them? I, it's, a, it's an interesting question, Andrea, and I, and I, I want to go back to kind of what you were saying about, about we tend to serve the programs. Um, it, it's, and it's not just that the sector tends to serve the programs. It's that the all up to now, many of the funding streams that have funded the programs have had uh, led us in a clear direction and only allowed us to do a very narrow group of of services. And those services weren't always necessarily the best services for kids and families. And so, uh, unfortunately, um, sometimes uh, people who are in leadership positions have to follow the lead of the of the funding structures that exist. I think I think that the thing that was somewhat challenging 
was pushing on those funding streams, was saying, uh, we don't want to do this service anymore, and we want you to allow us to demonstrate something different. Right. And uh, and we had very creative partners. We had partners that that uh, found ways to think with us. So in terms of the overall state of leadership, um, <laughs> go back to premise one. Yeah. You know, I, I think you will always see those three groups, those those groups that are anxious to change and want to, and then you'll see systemic resistance. Sure. Then you'll see those groups that want to wait and watch, and they'll watch the people that want to innovate and see if they get in trouble. Right. And so much of our field punishes you for making a mistake so true. and doesn't necessarily reward you for doing something right. So it, it does require a certain amount of, I think, um, organizational courage, uh, not just at the leadership level, but at the staff level, to say, no, we're going to try something different. Yeah. Good point. Well, Ken, you introduced wraparound services in the state of California. Would you talk to us for a little bit about what that was like and how you formed your partnerships uh, in order to make that happen uh, and really what the early stages of that were like for you? Well, and, and thank you for saying that, Tom. Actually, uh, there were there were a group of us that brought wraparound to California, and I, I wish I could say that we were the leaders in, in that innovation. But you know, I followed in the footsteps of a man from Chicago named Carl Dennis, who was my mentor and really was one of the people nationally who who came to us and said, "What are we doing here? You know, it, it, we can provide all this service in the context of a place where we take." kids away from their families, what if we provided that service for them when they were with their families? And and Carl led us to think long and hard about what we were doing here and whether it was the right thing and whether it was really about each individual child rather than about our program. And mm-hmm. uh, and it was I, I it was challenging uh, to introduce wraparound into California. It goes back to what I was saying to to Andre that, that that there was no funding structure that allowed for it. So we actually had to write a law uh, that that created a pilot project that allowed us to bring this service that just made so much sense to so many of us to kids and families. And um, mm-hmm. and I think there was resistance about the fear of the risk, what happens if something bad happens, if a child gets hurt. Uh, and, and I think there was fear about, um, uh, about what happens if we uh, end up spending more money than we have. And we had to mitigate all of those fears and demonstrate that this just made sense for kids and families. And now uh, wraparound services in California are uh, probably serving more kids than residential treatment. Sure. I wonder, for those who might not be as familiar with wraparound services, maybe you could just talk about what could you do when you were able to access a wraparound style of working with children and families that you weren't able to do before you were able to access that style? Yes. Uh, so, and and let, me, let me tell you something that sort of I think will exemplify that. We were doing a talk about wraparound. It was actually a talk that was in another country that's very family-oriented country. It was in Spain. 
and we were telling them about this phenomenal innovation of wraparound where we could do these services for kids and they were all looking at us we thought we had a language problem they were looking at us like we were crazy mm-hmm. and finally we stopped and said it looks like you guys are not understanding or not getting this and they said yes you're right we don't do you mean before you had wraparound services you would take children away from their families before you would provide services to their families <laughs> and in Spain they couldn't believe this because uh, of course sure. you would offer services to the family first of course you would try to keep the family together and and, and here in this country we didn't necessarily think that way originally mm-hmm. and so it was a sea change to think that we could take services and the kinds of services that we could do, individual counseling, family counseling, uh, uh, family support services, uh, a whole array of services that could be brought to bear from a family that was struggling to be able to keep their kids and treat them in a way that would allow them to thrive. So mm-hmm. it, it's a complete, it, 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 the idea is that you take the resources that you have in a residential setting and move them back to the family and allow people and relationships to transition with kids so that they can thrive in, in the context of a, of a, a permanent home. So, Ken, how long did it take you from your memory to go from, my gosh, we're not getting the results that we need when we transition these kids back to where you start to feel, yeah, this is working. Yeah, we're starting to make a difference. How long did it take you and what specific steps do you remember as having been most important toward moving you towards success? Hey, Tom, if I may, that, um, that makes the assumption that you think that we think we're there. <laughs> and, and we're not. Good point, we're sir. We're not. <laughs> Because it, 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 you know, it, it, when when you start this journey, what you see are opportunities. What's the next opportunity that we could that we could reach into a child's life earlier? What's the next opportunity that would allow us to have um, more good things happen for kids and families and less harm, less trauma? And mm-hmm. so, so that journey continues and it, and it, it took us from this very restrictive 30 years ago uh, serving of kids in, in very separate uh, residential treatment to I think four or five years later we went to intensive treatment foster care where we could help develop families that had all the supports and then shortly thereafter wrap around and then and when we did wrap around that took us inevitably into the public schools to say how do we make sure our kids can be supported in school and stay in school and then Mm -hmm. you find out very quickly the only way you're going to do that is to impact the whole school to create a setting that says we're we we, not only do we want to accept this child we want to embrace this child into our school community and that's Mm -hmm. where we are now is is thinking about school communities that can be healing in and of themselves and that can bring kids that are struggling and families that are struggling in and act as a center that can help kids not ever come into the system and not need the system. And so that the unconditional care has evolved into unconditional education, and that's sort of the next step of our journey. So we've got a long way to go. Well, we're going to come back to that uh, in just a little bit because I want to spend it 
bit of time exploring what you've been doing in schools and why. But before we get to that, I just want to wrap up our thinking about how your core mission and values has guided you through this process. And maybe just ask you a question. Do you think that the clarity of your values and your mission has allowed you to move forward where you may not have been able to move if you were just looking for new approaches? Yeah, absolutely. But but a lot of organizations have clarity of mission. Um, the the question then is, how do you articulate that mission into a series of ways of thinking that are flexible enough to respond to the environment, but that are rigid enough, that are are clear enough and concise enough that they. That, that your work doesn't become much, that your work becomes, it stays focused on not just mission but method. And, and I think that's what led us ultimately to writing Unconditional Care. Um, the, the ideas in Unconditional Care uh, can, can serve to inform a wraparound program, a school-based program, uh, a foster care program. They can serve to help families think about how they interact with one another. So that there are certain premises of thinking that then can inform that mission statement. And I think what I sometimes see is beautiful mission statements without forming ideas about how they take that mission into action and how they, that action can evolve to respond to the environment. Yeah. So, so Ken, do you subscribe to the notion that missions should change over time um, as focus becomes different? I mean, or, or is mission stagnant? Uh, interesting question. Um, the, the ultimate success of mission is for the mission to be unnecessary. Yeah. yeah. Right. 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 That, that's that's the ultimate success. Is that that fundamental mission, helping kids and families through the most difficult times in their lives? If you mitigate those conditions, then the initial mission might not be relevant anymore. So, ironically, the more successful you are, the less relevant your mission is. Um, so, I do think mission can evolve, uh, and and particularly that next step past mission, what program must evolve. Because if you're successful, it must evolve, right? Because you've solved the problem. If you're not successful, it must evolve because you haven't. So We'll come so, back to that in just a minute. We need to take a brief <laughs> pause, and then we'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. 
or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at innovisions.org. Innovisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need, exactly when you need it, so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. Welcome back. I'm Tom Wall, and I'm here with Andre Howard and our special guest, Ken Barrick. Before the break, we were discussing how Ken's organization was benefited both by the strength and clarity of their mission and their values, as well as by the new approaches like wraparound that they developed. Ken, you introduced the idea in the last segment of working within the schools. Could you share with our audience how you work with schools and why you work with schools? I'd be happy to. Um, and I, I think, again, as we, as we followed the thread of what was happening for and with our kids and families, uh, we ultimately found some terrific partners. Um, Education for Change in, in Oakland with Hayson Thomas and Lighthouse Schools and San Francisco Schools, San Francisco Unified School District. Uh, and, and those partners were trying to think deeply about how you integrate school climate and school culture, what a school feels like and how people think about the kids and families in the schools with mental health interventions for kids that were struggling in that context uh, and with special education interventions for kids that weren't were getting behind. And when you, when you look at and you think about those things and you think about school climate and school culture, it leads you back into the community. It leads you to integrate and, and partner with families and community organizations in a way that the school then can be, both benefit and be benefited by the cultures and communities that they're in. And so we developed in partnership with these very innovative and creative schools um, intervention systems that said, uh, instead of waiting until a child is behind, instead of waiting until we see a family really struggling and at risk of losing their kids, what would happen if we simply redirected those resources and said, we're going to allow a forum where we can do on-demand services, 
where any child, any parent, any teacher can come to either an office hour or a meeting once a week and say, I need help, and that help was immediately available. And mm-hmm. um, that sounds like a, a, an awfully difficult thing to do, and yet it's actually quite elegant and not that hard to do because if you don't wait until the problems become huge, then you have a much easier time and a more cost-effective time mitigating those problems. Good point. Good point. You talked earlier about how funding drives services and services rush after funding. You talked about the interconnectedness between the two and about, quite frankly, until you change the funding pattern, sometimes it's very difficult to change the services. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure, because I do see it as as the biggest systemic problem that we have. Um, there are deep, deep disincentives um, from a purely financial standpoint to innovate within really all of our fields, but particularly um, social service, mental health, and education. And Mm -hmm. and momentum tends to drive systems rather than innovation. Um, If if we were a tech industry, we would have been gone years ago. Um, where, Where innovation is so key and where the innovation cycle is so fast. Uh, the public sector tends to be extraordinarily slow to innovate, and um, and the incentives to innovate are 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 enormous. Uh, we we uh, uh, developed uh, an alternative program to one of our school programs that actually cost a little bit less, and we we tried to forward that idea to our government partner. And in this particular case. The government partner said that might be a good idea, but we, you'd have to give us back all of your funding, and then we could put that out to a request for proposal, and you could bid on your own funding. Four. <laughs> when that kind of system exists, it creates enormous barriers to innovation, and, and I think that's a, 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 a really, really endemic problem in public sector. Uh, and, and let me just—I mean, it, it is. Uh, but can, can convince me that I need to step outside that box. I mean, you know, uh, I, I rely. If I'm, you know, the typical uh, executive in the, in the sector, I rely heavily on on funding, obviously, from the government and local community um, uh, contributions and, and foundations, and they dictate that. They want a program delivered the, the, a certain way. They want certain outputs uh, to some degree uh, um, versus outcomes. I mean, I, th- I think there are a number of foundations which are certainly becoming uh, a little bit more savvy around that and demanding outcomes and wanting to certainly uh, be part uh, of impact. But there's still uh, too much, I think, in terms of uh, executives in the, in the sector um, being married to, uh, again, um, delivering uh, transactional uh, services and not wanting to change because the funding dictates that this is the way you need to behave. And so I think for many of us, we, we follow that, that pathway, which is kind of scary. And you're asking the best question, Andre, and I, I, I want to respond to it in the only way I can, and it's going to sound overly idealistic, but I, really, I only have one response to that. Sure. Because that, that is, it's what drives this. And the only way you can change that is if everyone in your organization said, if this were my child, would I do this? Yeah. 
And so even if the funding that's driving it says you can't do something different, at some point you have to say no. You have to say it doesn't matter whether or not this is the fundable thing. It doesn't matter whether this is the, the, the in vogue thing. If this were my child and I knew that this other intervention were available, which would I do? And then you just have to find a way to move that idea forward. And, and also, frankly, to simply say, I'm not going to do this other thing anymore. Right. Uh, regardless of what that thing is. And, and, and it, it's a, extraordinarily difficult thing to do. And yet, um, time and time again, we've found when we've taken those stands that it's moved us in the direction that we needed to go and ultimately served us from a funding perspective as well. Absolutely. That's powerful. You, you talk, Ken, about really how you have to develop a whole new pattern of thought that supports that mission and values that is in itself innovative and different. Talk a little bit more about that because the bottom line of what you suggest is sometimes when you know it's right, you got to leave what you've been doing that you feel safe with, but it's not getting the results you need. What pattern of thought supports that level of risk-taking and commitment? Yeah. Um, so, so we're, we're, this is a, a, a place where, where you're crossing over b- between sort of values and, and intellectual program th- uh, uh, thinking uh, or intellectual uh, uh, development of a program. And, and I, 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 I too often see or I sometimes see programs that don't know what they think. The funding streams actually inform what they think uh, as yeah. opposed to them saying, look, uh, for, for us, attachment theory, uh, learning theory, and social ecology always guide our thinking. And, and barring someone giving us profound evidence that we're wrong, they're going to continue to guide our thinking. So if, if there's a program model that from an attachment perspective doesn't make sense, then you have to stop doing it. You have to follow the thread of what do you need to do to make sure that that attachment is built into your thinking. And that's why residential treatment by itself doesn't work. Right. Because ultimately people need to be attached to other people. And, mm-hmm. and, and so you can take each of these threads when you're in a, in a classroom setting and, and kids are feeling like they're punished rather than rewarded. That's antithetical to learning theory. And it's not going to work. So you have to change that. You have to change that fundamental thinking. And it doesn't matter if something's funding you to do that. You have to stop doing it. Good. And so if I could just play it out one more step. Your pattern of thought needs to support the mission and the values in a way that gives you the guidance for the direction that you need to go and the decisions you need to make. right. That's exactly right. Mission without mind, mission that's not informed by a a clear rational thread that says this is how we're going to execute, this is what we think. Um, It it, it can take you in good directions, but ultimately it can't adapt and it can't move you down a road. Absolutely. Very, very good. 
Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about, I mean, I know you've been working around some of this uh, uh, the transformation movement around. I mean, a lot of this resonates with what you're doing as well out in the field, too, I'm assuming. It, it, it does. And, and you know, it, it, what it's done is it's led, led us to certain partners. It, it, it's led us to, the, the, there are, I think, a pretty large group of like-minded folks that, that, that are seeing um, this intersection between funding and program opportunities that where, where, where there's enough, where you, when you allow enough funding flexibility, you can take advantage of those opportunities. And, and, and I think we're seeing a good deal of that in education right now. Um, we were recently awarded something called an I3 grant, which is for innovation and education for our work in special ed. And that fund um, says, bring us a creative idea and then tell us how you will replicate it and or scale it. And if you can show us that this is an idea that has promise, we'll give you the flexibility to fund it. And those kinds of funding mechanisms end up, I think, changing that dynamic that, that we talked about earlier for, of this is what people fund, so this is the service we're going to do. And, mm-hmm. and I, 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 would, I really wish we saw a lot more of that in the public sector where someone said, bring us an idea and show us how you can scale it and we'll fund you to demonstrate whether it'll work with rigorous research that demonstrates it. And that's the other thing is you have to have evidence at the end of the day that what you said you were going to do is what, in fact, you do. Right. Sure. Absolutely. Ken, if, if, as we move toward the end of this particular segment, if you just go back and say once again for us, in your work in schools, what is it you're trying to accomplish? Um, what we're trying to do is, is take first um, the very broad climate of a school, um, and that means uh, everything from uh, when a teacher is in a classroom, what's the ratio of positive comments to negative comments? What uh, what method is the teacher using uh, from a behavioral perspective to get the classroom engaged and to uh, to move away from more punitive uh, types of classroom control? So, and also, what are the values of the school, and how do we? Uh, treat one another as an inclusive community and how do we value the diversity in a school and, and, and create a very clear methodology by which everyone is engaged in talking about that and everyone is engaged in creating that environment. Once you do that, then you see what students are struggling, what students are struggling with emotional problems, what students are struggling with learning disabilities. You can't see that until you have a school climate that doesn't give you a lot of false positives. Right? So when, when you see that and you understand what students are struggling with, then you have very specific interventions, behavioral interventions, mental health interventions, uh, uh, and uh, academic interventions that allow hold you to that intervene thought, Ken, very early. Hold that thought. we got a break for just <laughs> a moment. We'll be right back. Thank you. Great. Thanks. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network 
Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. Welcome back. I'm Tom Wall. With me here is Andre Howard and our special guest, Ken Barrick. We're talking about mission and values and achieving results. And before the break, Ken was talking to us about the critical ingredients involved in school transformation. Ken, if we could just go back and pick up where you were, maybe summarize just a little bit about your key thoughts. Uh, It was very important. If we could get back to it, it would be great. Thanks, Tom. I think where we left off was I was saying if you have a powerful school climate, school culture in place, if you have the kinds of interventions that positive behavioral intervention and supports have espoused across the nation, and then if you have the ability to identify which students are struggling, that you then create a forum uh, where people can bring those things forward in a very, very simple, straightforward way, and that forum has to be extraordinarily responsive. And and the thing that's, that is difficult about this is, in the past, our funding has been so segmented across special education, mental health, social services, and juvenile justice that you had to access them, in, uh, access that funding in a lot of different ways that weren't always readily available to kids and families. But if, sure. if you have this setting in a school and you get very clear about what the evidence-based interventions that are most effective early along are, and you use the same funding that's always been present in special ed and mental health in particular, that you can get much better outcomes by targeting that that funding to interventions that occur at more opportune points. And, and that's fundamentally what we do. When a, when a child asks for help, when a parent asks for help, when a teacher asks for help, we try to start to provide that help within 48 hours. And, um, and sometimes it's not the right help, and sometimes we have to come back a week later and say, or six weeks later and say, this, this isn't working. But then you try again. You don't wait six months, a year, two years until things are so bad that the interventions are extraordinarily ineffective and costly. Beautiful. 
makes all the sense in the world. Andre, I know you had a question that, that you wanted to ask. If you wanted to jump yeah, in right now, absolutely. that'd be great. Thanks, Tom. Uh, you know, Ken, I was sitting here thinking, and Ken is um, uh, such a great leader. I mean, he's a gold standard in terms of what a courageous leader looks like and really embodies. And, and I think he undersells a lot of what Seneca does. I mean, they've got programs and wonderful services in the mental health arena around wraparound and juvenile justice and education. Uh, I know you guys have a Seneca Institute for Advanced Practice, and I know you've been in this for about 30-plus years. And I'm just thinking to myself, how are you keeping this stuff fresh and, and, and keeping it at cutting edge and relevant? Uh, I mean, what is the secret sauce here, uh, Ken, in terms of trying to be relevant and impactful for children and families at the end of the day? What are you, what are you doing over there, I guess, is what I'm trying to figure out. Well, it, it, it'll actually, my my anniversary will be July 1st, will be 30 years. And, wow, um, okay. And, God uh, love you. Uh, That's wonderful. I just want to make sure you know that I was 12 when we started this. Okay. <laughs> of course we know that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, let me let me speak to the way that I keep it fresh for me, Andre, and and uh, and that's it. My job has not been the same two years in a row. Yeah, I I, I it, I've had the great privilege of being able to think and rethink and rethink what we do and what our role is, and and also both the 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 pain and the pleasure of never being satisfied. And so, mm-hmm. so it's that that push for what's next, and then, and then having the great privilege of being surrounded by a group of people uh, mm. uh, that that feel the same way, that that always want to think about what's next, and and we hire for it, we train for it. Um, the organization is not just around the growth of our programs; it's about each individual's personal and professional growth mm-hmm. and and that makes the job transform in ways that always keep it fresh uh, mm-hmm. so uh, it, I, if I'd been doing the same job for 30 years I would have been gone 25 years ago <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well I wonder if, if we could shift into the portion of this last segment uh, Ken where we ask you to give a measure of advice to your fellow service providers what you've learned over these last 30 years that you think is uh, important to pass on to other people who might be listening today. All right. Well, Tom, the first piece of advice I would give them is um, never listen to other CEOs giving you free advice. Uh, <laughs> but, but assuming that you're not going to be satisfied with that particular answer. No, sir. We want a little more, please. <laughs> okay. I, I think when I, I have had the privilege of mentoring some new CEOs that that are coming in, and um, and and I I think typically the way that I guide them is to be very very clear about who you serve, why you serve them, and then be really clear about the way, and then then test that and make sure that it's true to what you say you were going to do. And and be willing, in fact, delight in saying that you were wrong. Um, you know, there have been a few times when, when we've made some pretty significant mistakes. And um, in that first moment of saying, this was the wrong thing to do, is never very much fun. Um, mm-hmm. But the next moment of saying, what are we going to do instead is really, really the joy of the work. 
and mm-hmm. and so it's it's not much different than the way that I would ask people to think about their own personal growth. Is when when you see that something's not working, you have to be willing to face it and make those hard decisions, and and then you have to have the intellectual capital in terms of the the, the your own thinking and clarity about wh- how you're going to do that and and how you're going to execute. Very good. Is there any one thing that you know now that you really wished you had known 10 years ago? <laughs> uh, no, there's not any one thing. There are hundreds of things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you share a few of those with us, Ken? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I, I guess uh, I, I wish I had known how to seek out uh, people, the, the right people to partner with, and that where there was a, a difference in values, to uh, uh, allow those and respect those differences, but to move on to partnerships that that I think would be more fruitful. I think that that's that we, we have we've had the great privilege, especially in the last ten years, to have partnerships that are really rich in exchanges of thought and values and that have allowed us to advance the work. Uh, mm-hmm. And so um, I, I think not trying to, uh, to ask people to change their values, but to try to find people who are aligned and partner with the values of, of your organization ends up being very, very important. Um, Thanks, Ken. This has been a wonderful opportunity to share thoughts with you. My thanks to you, to Andre Howard, uh, for the partnership uh, during this conversation. Thanks to all of you out there who were tuning in today. This is Leadership Matters. Until the next time, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you again for tuning in. Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar is broadcast live every Wednesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a wonderful week and make your leadership matter. Matter.